Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another Sunday service and the message part of that. We just came out of a brief two-part series on trust, just something small. And now we're going to start a new series, looking at the life of Christ. But we're going to take it in a slightly different direction, at least different for me. I've, I've never done it like this before personally or um, sat through anything like this. You know, normally we study a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We study one of those kind of on its own, start to finish. And I love that. I've taught classes like that. I've greatly enjoyed sermon series like that. Right? There's nothing wrong with doing that. But if you caught the preview video that we published Friday, and if you didn't, I would encourage you to go back. It's on our church Facebook page. Go back and find that preview video where I laid out the differences between the four. The four Gospels all approach the story of Jesus from slightly different perspectives and with slightly different audiences in mind and different tendencies of what they focus on. And so when we look at the story of Jesus across all four Gospels, it gives us a more complete picture of his life and of his ministry. And so we're going to look at Jesus's story, Jesus's life, chronologically speaking. We're not just going to go through Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and then John. We're going to start with the beginning of Jesus's life, his birth, and we're going to look at the account in both Matthew and Luke. And we'll continue that pattern as we move forward up until his death and crucifixion and resurrection, right? Looking at not necessarily what does this one book say in order, but what does this story look like in order across the different Gospels? Um, I think that'll provide us with just, a, like I said, a more complete picture of who Christ is. And we'll get into why that's so important in just a second. But before we begin, I'd like to pray. God, thank you for everything. It is incredible that we are in a time of so much uncertainty and unpredictability, and we have an anchor for it all. And I thank you that we have that so that we can be people of peace and of joy, even in times like this. Um, as we begin to study your word, Lord, please quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, whatever distractions may be trying to take our attention this morning, we ask, or whenever we listen to this, we ask that we would focus on you in this time, that we would be still before you and we would learn from you. Let these be your words. Let this be a time that glorifies your name, that is pleasing to your heart, God. Let this be a sacrifice that we present to you. We love you and we praise you. Amen. So why are we studying Jesus? Hopefully nobody is, you know, really like, really, we're going to study Jesus? Come on. Hopefully nobody is quite that far. But maybe, maybe there are some of us who are thinking like, aren't we always kind of studying Jesus? Don't we, you know, it kind of always relates back to Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but specifically, I, I want to take time and really know the person of Christ because that's the command on our lives, right? That's God's intent is that we would be conformed to the person of Christ. Romans 8.29 and 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 make it very clear that we are meant to be conformed. We are meant to imitate Jesus in this life. And that idea of conforming to the image of Christ, conforming to the person of Christ, that's what we call sanctification. And that's a big topic. That's a very deep topic. We'll get into that, okay? We'll, we'll study that at some point a little bit down the road. We can't discount the role of the Holy Spirit within that, the surrendering of that. Like I said, it's a big topic. But you'll see sanctification pop up in some of those verses and some of the ones as we continue to go through the Gospels. 
That's what that's referring to, conforming to the person of Christ. And before we study that, what that looks like, I want us to make sure we know who Jesus is. Because the bottom line is, you can't imitate someone you're not familiar with, right? You just can't. There was a substitute teacher in my high school that we loved as students. His name was Mr. Mattel, and he was a firm holdout from the 60s hippie culture, right? Like he, he was not letting go of that. When he showed up as a sub, he frequently just blatantly ignored the dress code. He would frequently digress from the lessons plan, like the lesson plans that teachers had left for him, and he would just talk to us about hiking or favorite concerts that he'd gone to. Like it, it, we as students, we thought he was hilarious and we loved him, right? And he had a very distinct voice, distinct mannerisms. Um, so what I want you all to do, I want you to send a video comment, you know, with your best imitation of Mr. Mattel. I want to see your impression of Mr. Mattel. You can't, right? Unless I, I've been blown away sometimes at how crazy small this world is. Maybe there are some of you who happen to know this man I'm speaking of. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say 99.9% .9 certainty, you guys have no clue who this man is, right? So you would not be able to imitate him with any sort of confidence or accuracy. Best case scenario, based on the one or two things I told you about him, right? Best case scenario, you could give a guess at what he might be like, but it would just be a stab in the dark, right? You wouldn't really know what you were doing. You would just kind of be making some assumptions based off of what I've said. And I can't help but wonder, and sadly, are there Christians walking around trying to do the same thing with Jesus? Do we have Christians trying to give their best impression of Jesus without really knowing Jesus, just kind of going off of what their pastor or their Sunday school teacher or some author or a podcast has said about Jesus? Right, I've heard this about Jesus. Um, so here's, here's kind of my, my shot at it, but I don't really know Jesus. Right? In the same way that you couldn't give a good imitation of Mr. Matilda as you don't know him, we can't give a good imitation of Jesus if we don't know him. And so I want to take time to know Jesus, to study his life, his ministry. I want us to, to know the words that he used, the conversations he had, the way he interacted with people, the way he treated people, right? the way he behaved in his own personal life. That's why we're doing a deep chronological study of Jesus's life, because I want us to be a church that knows, intimately as individuals, knows the person of Christ. It's not enough if you attend a church with other people who know Christ. I want each and every one of us to be able to say, I deeply know the person of Jesus. I know how he lived. I know how he talked. I know how he behaved. I know who I'm supposed to imitate right? And so that's why we're going to do this. And I want to start, as most stories do, at the beginning with his birth. And I realize we could go back to Old Testament prophecies and stuff, and we may, but I want to start with his birth. Um, because this is a story that I would say, I, I would hazard a guess, is probably pretty well known, even by those outside of the church, right? You think of one of the two Sundays of the year when most people are likely to attend church, even if it's not really their thing, and Christmas Eve, right? So I would say a lot of people who aren't even in the church or would consider themselves Christian know kind of the basic story, right? You've got the nativity scene, the manger, 
angels, there was a star, there were some guys who are normally depicted on camels, uh, dressed all fancy, shepherds show up at one point. I know the story, right? So I want to take time, even though I think most of us know the story. I want to really look at the two accounts of Jesus' birth that we find in Matthew and in Luke. And if I may, we'll start with Matthew, and then we'll move on to Luke, and we'll have time in between to ask some questions. Because I think the way I categorize these two accounts, when I look at Matthew's account, I see lessons that we learn about God. Right? In Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, I see several key takeaways about who God is, who Jesus is. And then in Luke's account, I see several key takeaways about who we are and how we should respond to the person of Jesus. And so is with everything. I want us to begin with God, with Jesus. That's why we're going to start in Matthew. So this is Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Pretty straightforward account, right? But there are a couple things in there that we see that just are mind-blowing when we consider what they reveal about God and who God is and who the person of Christ is. And the first thing I see is Matthew 1.21. You know, four or five verses into that section. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The first thing that leaps out to me is he will save his people from their sins, right? You know, we talked about if you paid attention to our Easter Holy Week devotionals, I mentioned Jesus as one of his last days on earth. He chose to serve, right? And I asked the question, you know, we've all played that hypothetical game. What would you do if you had 24 hours to live, a week to live? How many of us would say serve? But it goes far deeper than that. We have to remember that it wasn't just his last week that he was aware of this. He was born for the express purpose of dying for our sins. And Jesus is God, so he has always existed. So Jesus knew from the start of time that this was going to come. And that's what I want you to understand about this, right? Because tragically, you can find people out there teaching that Jesus was kind of a response to sin, right? That God was caught unaware by Adam and Eve and had to adapt his plan. That God had to change the direction of history to respond to sin, no, this was always the intent for Christ. This was always the plan. Listen to these verses. This is Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
a plan for the fullness of time. From the beginning of time, from the, the very creation of time, this was the plan that Jesus would save his people. That's incredible to think that from the beginning, God intended for his son to die for you and I so that we could have a relationship. And that relationship, right, that's where we're moving into next because what's the second thing that stands out to me in that verse? She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. I love how God is working, right? I, I do. I, I think this is incredible to see. So Dan Mould did our elder devotional on Tuesday, right? What was the question he asked? He asked, who are you? He wanted us to think about our identity in Christ. And the moment he sent that video to James and I to get it up there, right, I sent him a text, I watched it, and I was like, dude, this is what I'm preaching on Sunday. And we hadn't talked about it at all. And so we were both like, man, God is so good. How incredible is that, that he's planting the same idea in the hearts of his people so that we can be engaging with it, building up to and throughout the week and considering it. So I love seeing how God is working. Because that verse says he will, he will save his people. And so just like Dan asked, who are you? You are God's. You belong to Jesus. And there are a couple key takeaways because of that. First, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. When the Bible reminds us that we are his people, it's reminding us that we are accountable to someone larger than ourselves. It is not about what I want to do with my own life, how I want to behave, how I feel like acting in any given moment. We were bought with a price. You are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This verse reminds me that I am his, I am responsible to how he wants me to live, not how I feel like living. So like Dan asked, who are you? You are God's. You belong to Jesus. That means we're accountable to God. We are accountable to what he has laid out before us. This is not our own life. This is not my breath in my lungs. This is a gift given to me by God because I am his. I must act like it. The desire of every Christian's heart should be to glorify God, not just with our actions and with our words. But what does that say? Glorify God with our bodies, with our very lives, with everything we do. I should be striving to glorify the Lord. And then the second thing that sticks out to me when I consider he will save his people, that I am his. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a phenomenal verse. What a beautiful verse of who you are to that question of who am I? I am his. Okay, what does that mean? I am his. I am a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I am for his own possession that I may proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, that I may proclaim the excellencies. It goes back to what we read in Corinthians. My life should be about glorifying the Lord. 
And then the last phrase there in 1 Peter, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are children of light. The darkness has no hold on us. The darkness does not have dominion over us. The darkness does not have control on us. The darkness does not have claim to us. It breaks my heart. I mean, literally, you can ask Adeline about times where I've wept as we've talked about Christians who don't realize that they're not children of darkness, who don't realize that they've been called out of darkness into marvelous light. It is devastating to me when I have conversations with people or when I read books by people or I listen to podcasts. It is devastating to me every time I encounter Christians who don't realize the freedom we have been given in Christ. As His, we are in marvelous light. We still struggle, to be sure. I'm not saying that we don't still fight against sin in the darkness. But read through Romans 6 through 8. Death and darkness and sin have no power over us as His people. And I, I desire with everything in me that we would be a church that embraces that. That we would be a church fully aware of our lives in His light. And aware that we are not in the darkness. I want that so badly for this body. And not just this body, but for the church in general. But I see these things in that one verse of Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And honestly, what it makes me think of, if you're all okay with me using a little bit of a, you know, childish example, you guys seen the movie Toy Story? Right? The, the original Pixar Toy Story? Think about Buzz in that movie. Buzz wrestled with his identity. Buzz wrestled with his purpose. He was conflicted. All of the pain that he experienced in that movie was because he was trying to hold on to what he thought was his past identity. For so long, Buzz refused to accept or wrap his mind around that he wasn't who he thought he, he was in the past. And it wasn't until he really learned to look down and see Andy's name on his foot and accept that as his identity. Okay, I belong to Andy. Once he accepted that, and learn to live within the purpose of that, once he learned to live within the purpose of being Andes, that was when things made sense for him. That was when his story turned around. And I can't help but wonder if there are Christians who need to look down and see God's name written on our foot in Sharpie. If we need to remember that I am his, the purpose of my existence is to be his and to live in the wonder of that. That's what I see in this account of Jesus' birth. And then secondly, to just go down one verse, so that was Matthew one twenty one, Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I think that's such an incredible phrase. Such a, a beautiful phrase that just fills my heart with joy, which means God with us. And again, there are a couple truths that we learn about God in that, in that, those few words, that one phrase. 
God with us. First, Jesus was always God. Jesus always has been God. Jesus always will be God. Jesus is God. Don't ever let anyone try and tell you that Jesus surrendered his deity when he was on this earth, right? That he, okay, for a time being, he, you know, he still knew God more than us, but he wasn't God. No, Jesus was always God. Listen to Colossians 2, 9 through 10. For in him, Jesus, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The, full de the whole fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily, who is the head of all rule and authority. Emmanuel, God with us. Don't ever let someone try and tell you that Jesus was not God in his time on earth. And then secondly, God with us. I want to look at that word with, because that's incredible, right? Other religions, when you compare Christianity to other religions, other religions offer a set of rules, a list of how you move up towards their God, right? Here's what you need to do to try and work your way up the ladder to get closer to our God. Yahweh, the only God, the real sovereign Alpha and Omega, mm -mm. he came down. He came down to us. Other religions are about how you can try and move closer to where their God is, just kind of looking at you, waiting for you to try and get there. Yahweh came down to us. That's incredible. That the God of the universe looked at us and said, yes, those are my people. I will go down to them. Emmanuel, God with us. And he came down not to offer a set of tasks and checklists, but to offer a relationship, God with us. Listen to these verses. This is Deuteronomy 4, 7. And again, this isn't just New Testament. We're going to go New Testament and Old Testament, and we're going to alternate. So you see, this is the story of the Bible. Deuteronomy 4, 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? What other nation has this? What other people who try and claim their God is God has a relationship like we do with our Lord? Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I will enter in and we will fellowship. We will have relationship. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God is in our midst for the purpose of a relationship. God with us. Psalm 139, verses 5 and 7. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? It's beautiful. It's indescribable. It's mind-blowing that the Lord of the universe looked at us and said, I want a relationship with them. I will go to them so that we can have this relationship. What a beautiful, beautiful truth that should define our lives. And we see that in the account of Jesus' birth, right? That's what we learn about God from Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. Now let's look at what you know we learn about ourselves. As we understand God better and Jesus better, we begin to understand ourselves better. And I think we see that in Luke's account of Jesus' birth. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. I won't read the entirety of it, 
Um, but basically, to start it off, Luke 1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augusta, right? So you have the impetus for Joseph and Mary to travel. And that's how they wind up back at the inn, right, where there was no room, so they wind up. That's how, that's how we get there, okay? The decree that started from Caesar Augustus, it's kind of in the first seven verses. And then I want to read a little bit here in the middle. This is starting in verse 8, when the angels go to tell the shepherds. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Right? So the angels appear to the shepherd, and they said, I, We have good news of great joy for all people. And then it goes on that the host of angels appear and they sing glory to God. And so the shepherds immediately let us rush to Bethlehem and see this thing. So the shepherds go up, they go, they find Jesus. And then this is verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So that's the account in Luke, right? And again, there are a couple key lessons that jump out to me of, okay, what does this mean for me personally? What does this mean for you personally? Right? The first one is there in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Gospel means good news. So when we talk about the four gospels, we're talking about you know the four accounts of the good news of Jesus. And how does the angel describe it? Good news of great joy for all people. I just want to ask a very simple question here that this verse calls to mind. Would you describe the average Christian as someone of great joy? Reflectively, would you describe yourself truthfully as someone of great joy? Right? If I died tomorrow and my obituary was written and the opening line was, Sam Belsterling, a person of great joy, passed away yesterday. Would people read that and be confused? That's, that's not the Sam I knew. Plug your name in there, right? If your obituary opened with, fill in the blank, a person of great joy passed away yesterday. Would people read that and would they be confused or would they say, yeah, yeah, when I think of that person, they were a person of great joy. Guys, if we're going to live gospel-centered lives, if we're going to live gospel-defined lives, I mean, if my life is going to be defined, and as a Christian, I'm claiming that my life is defined by Jesus, so if I'm claiming that my life is defined by the good news of Christ, how can I be anything but a person of great joy? For all people. Let's go back to Matthew. He will save his people from their sins. I have been saved from hell. Name one thing that could happen in this life that is worse than that. Name one thing that could happen that takes away from the joy of being saved from hell, having a relationship with God and being promised eternity in heaven with him. So I ask again, can we truthfully describe ourselves as people of great joy? 
and look, let me make a point here, right? Joy and happiness are very different. Happiness is an emotion, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, so on. It doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is love, happiness. Happiness is an emotion. It'll, it'll change. It'll ebb and flow, right? If I go out and I get in a terrible car crash, in that moment I'm not going to be emotionally happy, right? If, if Adeline died suddenly, I am not going to be emotionally happy. Happiness is an emotion. I'm not talking about an emotion. I'm not saying, are Christians people who are always emotionally happy walking around with a smile on their face? That's not the question. The question is, are we people of great joy? Because a spirit of joy is not dragged down by what happens around us. A spirit of joy cannot be hindered or dampened by what we experience because our joy is not rooted in what we experience. Our joy is not rooted or centered in this life. Our joy is centered in the person of Christ, the good news for all people of a Savior who will save us from our sins. That is the source of joy. And so I ask a third time, can you honestly describe yourself as a person whose life reflects great joy? And then the second thing I see here in Luke's account, and this is at the end, verse 20, Luke 2, 2, Luke 2, 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. What was your reaction? To glorify and praise God. They encountered Christ and they glorified and praised God. Jesus points people to the Father. This continues in Luke 2. If you go on to Luke 2, 25 to 38, you have Simeon and Anna who meet him in the temple. And what happens in each case? Simeon meets Jesus, Anna meets Jesus, and in both cases, they immediately begin praising and celebrating the Father. John 17, 6 through 18, Jesus' own words. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus in those two words, he's demonstrated, I'm not speaking on my own authority. I'm not speaking based on what I want. I am teaching what God sent me to teach. I'm speaking on his authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus was committed to glorifying the Father. Jesus pointed people to glorifying the Father. When the shepherds met the person of Christ, they went away praising God. When Simeon met Christ, he went away praising God. When Anna met Christ, she went away praising God. So the question I have to ask myself is, do I have that same nature to my relationship with Jesus? When I look at my relationship with Jesus, do I come away glorifying and praising God? And I'm not just talking about in the big moments. I'm talking about a day-to-day -day heart of worship for the Lord. Do I wake up in the realization that, oh my goodness, I've been saved in the person of Christ. God, glory be your name. Do I look like the shepherds in this story? I hear about Jesus. I run to Jesus. I want to see Jesus. And when I see Jesus, God, to your name be glory. I give all praise to you because of who you sent for us. It's incredible 
to think of the story of Jesus' birth that we know so well and we've spent so much time on over our lives hearing on countless Christmas Eve services. And when I read it and studied it over these past couple weeks, just, just seeing it with new eyes and just looking at these details wrapped up in this story of the birth of a baby. <laughs> Jesus hasn't even spoken a word at this point. He's an infant. And in the story of his birth as an infant, we see that this has always been God's plan. We see the eternal nature of God's love and grace. We see that Jesus came to save us from our sins, that to free us from darkness, to call us into light. We see that we are His, all in the story of an infant being born. We see that it is good news of great joy for all people within the story of an infant being born. And we see that our result must be praising God, all within the story of an infant being born. Jesus' life is incredible. And it begins in this moment. I shouldn't say it begins. He's, he's eternal. He has always existed. But this story of his ministry on earth, as it begins with his birth, this is what we see about who God is and what God has intended and what God has desired. Already we have a deeper understanding. Maybe not. Maybe you've always understood this about Jesus. But if you haven't, you know, hopefully you came away with a deeper understanding of God's plan from the beginning of time for you to have that relationship, Emmanuel, God with us. So we consider that Jesus is with us, that God is with us, his Holy Spirit dwells within us. You know, to use the Toy Story example, you've got God's name written on your foot in Sharpie. It's incredible. And this is just in his birth. I'm so excited. There's my buzzword, right? I'm so excited for this series as we study Jesus's life chronologically. We'll send out an email uh, with some of these passages, and I'm working. I'm, I'm trying to put together. I've got my chronological list put together, and, and look, I want to. I guess kind of one final thought uh, on the chronolo chronological order of this. It's hard because most of the gospels weren't written in order time-wise, especially across the four of them. Um, so it might not be 100% perfect. This day, this day, this day. But I spent time, I compared, I don't know how many biblical scholar, academic resources on the chronology of Jesus' life. I feel okay that the chronology we'll use for this series is as good as we're going to figure out of Jesus' life. And I can't wait. Oh, there's some awesome stuff ahead. Um, but I'm working on putting that together in kind of a neat format so that if you want to read along with the series as we move, you know, start to finish through his life and ministry, you have that available. Um, so look for those emails. And then lastly, I just want to pray. I just want to pray and thank God for who Jesus is and how incredible it is that he sent him for us. So please join me in that. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Emmanuel, for God with us. Thank you that he was always fully God. And in that deity... He loved us perfectly and he died for us perfectly. That he, he saved us from our sins. That we are his. That we are yours. Thank you for what you have made available to us through the person of Christ. We ask that as we continue to pour ourselves into studying his life, that you would show us more and more of the depth and the beauty of Christ so that we can imitate him and be conformed to his image. We surrender to you in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a good week. We will see you Tuesday for the Elder Devotional.